Hi, and welcome to our first episode of Docs Talk Story, where we share the journeys, accomplishments, typical day, and advice of doctors practicing here in Hawaii, in hopes of inspiring listeners and helping medical students navigate the wide range of specialties the medical field has to offer. My name is Riley, and I'm going to be your host for this episode. Thanks for tuning in. On today's episode, we have Dr. Todd Kauai, an internist at Kaiser Ko'olau Clinic. Dr. Kauai attended medical school at Jabsom and residency at the UH Manoa MedPeds program. Dr. Kauai is also the Assistant Associate Medical Director of Primary Care Operations in Oahu, Assistant Associate Medical Director of Continuous Improvement, and the Chief of the Lihui Clinic. Good afternoon, Dr. Kauai, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey? Um, how did you get to where you are today, and maybe also how, when, and why you decided to go into MedPeds? Okay. Hi, my name is Todd Kauai. Um, I'm a local boy from Kahalu, um, flunked out of uh, uh, <laughs> the public school system. Um, they actually said I was mentally retarded and was supposed to go into special ed, but then my parents said, no, I don't think he's that stupid. So they put me into um, private school. I went from one private school to another private school, and then by sixth grade, I got into both Yolani and Punahou. Uh, went into Yolani. And all of this in the background, my parents are just farmers and, you know, they, they had to really make a lot of sacrifices in order for me to go to school. Um, so I helped pay my way through Yolani. And then, uh, you know, luckily I graduated. Um, at the time of graduation, I decided that they had made a big investment on me. So I decided that I would pay the rest of my way through, uh, schooling. And at an early age, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Um, but it was funny, as you go through life, you remember all the people who tell you you can't be a doctor, and that just spurred me on more. I'm the kind of person that if you tell me you can't do it, I'm going to say, no, I think I can, and I'll try, and I'll try really hard to prove you wrong. Um, you know, I, I put myself through UH, um, got a BS in biology. At the time, I had done um, a lot of research at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology under Dr. Gordon Grau. And I had accumulated so much research that uh, it was enough for, you know, definitely for a master's and rivaling a PhD thesis. So I did a year um, in the Department of Zoology and got a master's of science in bio, um, zoology and then went on to medical school. Uh, I graduated from Jabsom in 1997. And at that point in time, went on to go into the UH Combined Integrated Internal Medicine Pediatrics Program, so MedPeds for short. It had been in um, inception for about three years at that time. And, um, you know, I followed a bunch of illustrious um, doctors prior to me, as well as those who followed me as well. Um, MedPeds was definitely through my, you know, clinical clerkship um really solidified it for me to go into MedPeds. Um, so could you maybe elaborate a little bit more for the listeners why specifically you chose to go into MedPeds? You know, there's things in life that you realize that life is so short you only go through it once. And so don't waste your time on things that you don't like. Know what you like and know what you don't like. And one thing I didn't like was... Um, OBGYN. I was like, oh my goodness, this is, this is, this is like heavy stuff. And you know, I'd rather just give me the baby and I'll take care of the baby. Not taking anything away from my fellow OBGYN colleagues. It was just not my thing. 
And so as I was going through my career, initially I thought it could be a family practice doc. But then when I heard you had to do actually OBGYN, I said, okay, no more. I said, there is no way I'm going to do this. And I was very intrigued on MenPeds because you'll be board certified both in internal medicine and pediatrics. And, you know, life can never predict what the future holds. No one could have predicted COVID-19 as it is today. And the most important thing is you're going to go through all this training. You don't want to go through all this training and become obsolete. You know, the writing's on the wall. You know, for pediatrics at that time, there's a lot of nurse practitioners who are doing the, I would say, the nuts and bolts of pediatrics, which is doing physical exams and all. And, you know, more and more of what um, other specialties like family practice could do, you know, um, sort of aid into that arena of pediatrics. And so knowing if I just did pediatrics, you know, would have to go into a specialty or what, but I really didn't want to specialize because I actually love doing primary care. And so understanding to be as flexible as possible um, to meet the demands of the future, I decided to do MedPeds. And luckily, I got into MedPeds uh, residency from 97 and graduated in 2001. So you touched a little bit on like the difference between MedPeds and family medicine. Um, you kind of said that family medicine has to still do some of the OBGYN um, type of work. Um, what is the training pathways, like how do they differ, I guess, in comparison of family medicine and MedPeds? Is the depth of training very different? I would say the depth of training um, is a little different. I think it's your more intense. Uh, when you do your internal medicine clerkships, I mean, um, you know, residency, um, you know, courses, uh, you're expected to fall in line with just a categorical internal medicine. So you need to know your stuff as good as that other person. Um, same as pediatrics. It's usually a four-year program. So in two years, you got to be and as good as someone who had three years of training. And so it's there's some overlap, of course. And um, I think um, doing MedPeds, um, you know, I think medicine makes you a greater pediatrician. I think um, it's not as much when you when you compare it the other way. Doing pediatrics only really uh, makes you better in the sense of knowing congenital diseases, um, you know, the whole area of um, genetics, and that is exploding. And so that will help you in, in internal medicine. Um, but definitely the skill set you learn in internal medicine makes you a way better pediatrician. Awesome. So how about the patient population in comparison to family medicine? Is it you still see like the whole spectrum or do, I guess, um, clinicians tend to lean more towards like just doing uh, medicine or pediatrics when you do practice? So for myself, when I started, I had to compete with two pediatricians for my clinic. So for those incoming new babies, you know, it was it was more difficult. Um, definitely there was a need for internal medicine. And so as the years have gone by, um, I've um, have done less and less pediatrics, um, not by choice, but more by the needs of the community and who we had available. Um, and so, you know, recently I've, you know, um, you know, just do more, more of the, I would say, you know, pediatric patients, you know, in the eight and up. Uh, more so now, just because um, the aging population in Hawaii, 
that burden of the geri geriatrics patient is so large. Um, but early in my career, I had a better mix. Um, do you have to do board like recertifications for both um, internal medicine and peds? Unfortunately, you have to. And uh, so for recently, I, a couple of years ago, I decided to forego my pediatrics, um, you know, recertification. I'm just doing my internal medicines. Actually, I go up, uh, retake the test next year for internal medicine. So I know you kind of said you wanted to stay um, just without specializing, but are there options to further spe sub-specialize um, within MedPeds? Definitely. Um, there are MedPeds uh, um, mentors of mine who did well, go on to a double fellowship in cardiology. So not only doing pediatric cardiology, but also doing internal medicine, uh, going to general adult cardiology. Um, so definitely there are, you know, opportunities to do uh, either one or the other or do both. Um, but at some point, you got to actually stop and say, hey, I think I better make a living and I better settle down and take care of the family. I guess for me, that seems like just so much information that you'd have to learn and remember. Um, I guess, how do you balance like staying up to date with both like the internal medicine and all the pediatrics information? Is it very difficult? Um, it is, it is difficult if you don't have a process for you to read, you know, and trying to integrate, um, you know, um, different sources of information into your practice. Um, you know, some days I can go and look at the primary literature, but that's a minority. Um, a lot of times I'll go into some, um, groups that actually, um, do more of a you know, like up to date, they sort of condense the information that's available out there. And then if you agree or disagree with it, or you need to know more, you can go to the primary literature because it's usually notated or footnoted there. Um, but having, you know, something like up to date, either on your phone or in your, on the computer, uh, helps you really at the point of um, patient contact as well. Because, you know, you're not going to know everything. Um, and I would say this is the one thing great about going to the Johnny Burns School of Medicine, the whole process of PBL will make you really good at problem solving. Yeah, you might not know the diagnosis right then and there, but, you know, given the opportunity, you're going to go after the patient leaves, use your problem learning, you know, process that you use, and you, you will get to the answer. There's no doubt. And so the process is very important. So, you know, continuing to use that throughout my career has been invaluable. So given that there's no uh, MedPeds residency program here in Hawaii anymore, um, what do you think, like, JAPSM students that are interested in MedPeds should do in terms of um, residency? Do you have any, like, tips or anything? Yeah, I would say that definitely um, go and speak to other MedPeds uh, physicians. There are a bunch of MedPeds doctors here in Hawaii. Um, those that trained on the mainland, those that actually came from our program. Um, the other thing I would say is in your fourth year, go and away to the West Coast or East Coast um, and try to, you know, see what it's like. Talk to the people in the MedPeds programs, you know, um, and do a clerkship there during your fourth year. I think that would be invaluable because I think um, with MedPeds, it's also being comfortable about where you're at, Yeah. I think for myself, if uh, UH didn't offer it, I would have gone away for training. 
There are many people who wanted to do medpeds, but because they didn't think they had what it takes to do the two, um, you know, residencies in a more condensed time, um, they didn't do it. They went for what was considered more like a safe thing, like I can do this, right? And even for myself, I had those doubts until I said, no, I really don't want to do something I don't want to do. And so I chose MedPeds. Okay, so just to switch gears a little, um, I know you talked about now that you're mostly just practicing um, with medicine, but what does your typical like day look like in the clinic? Could you kind of share that for the listeners? I typically in the uh, clinic by 7.30, and then I'll go ahead and... Um, you know, start prepping my charts, uh, making sure I understand those people are coming in, why they're coming in, and at least addressing a lot of the chronic problems they have. Um, and then, um, you know, I start seeing patients about 8, 20 or so. Um, you know, prior to COVID-19, it was just a lot of face-to-face encounters, um, maybe uh, 10% of encounters was through emails at that time and maybe another 10% was through telephones and so in between those patients I would see face to face I'd be doing emails and telephones um, and then usually another the day it was probably 5 to 5.36 um, that would be the, about the time that I finished the day's work maybe around 6 o'clock um, but I hold uh, different hats, and those different hats sometimes extends the time I'm at the clinic. Yeah, so some of the hats that you wear include um, primary care leadership. So can you just share what inspired you to get into leadership and administration? You know, I went through med school not to become a leader. I went to med school to actually serve communities and serve my patients. And so um, it was kind of interesting how things sort of you know, comes around. I can remember those early days out in Nanakuli where, you know, there was some frustration and horror as I seen so many um, young Hawaiians who needed to have amputations in their legs. And this was due to poorly controlled diabetes, chronic vascular disease. And it, it was one of those moments where it's, you sort of, sort of, you feel like you're in a movie, you're kind of sickened by it. As you sent the umpteen patient off to the hospital, you know they're going to lose their legs. And you ask yourself, okay, what problem are we trying to solve, right? You know, I can save his, I can save the person's life, but I'm, we're losing the leg. We're too downstream from the event. We need to get way more upstream. And that's where we had to make a decision around, hey, what kind of medicine are we doing? Are we doing Band-Aid medicine or are we doing primary care? Primary care is supposed to be primary prevention of diseases. Can we get to that point? But because we had so many patients and where do you start, you know? So creating systems and processes to help us, you know, that's where I started getting involved in in it because I said there's got to be a better way to care for populations of people you know, population medicine and all. And I think for all of us, you know, when you see the difference between the current state and what you believe can truly happen, when you understand how big that gap is and 
the bigger the gap, the more, I guess, you know, um, desire to lead and change things. And I used to think that, um, you know, I would talk to my friend, Dr. Patel, and I accused him of smoking pakololo many times because I said, what? We're going to change the way Kaiser does medicine? I said, are you joking me? And, you know, because I never thought that I could, you know. One person can change the system of how we do medicine. But, you know, he said, no, we can. And, you know, together, as well as other people that believed, you know, we did change the system of um, primary care in Kaiser Permanente. If you still have the game to solve problems and lead people to a better place, right? If you still have that passion to solve problems, stay in it, right? Um, I like to help people with culture, right? Create the right culture to care for our communities. Um, those are stuff that inspire me. And hopefully I inspire the next generation of leaders as well within Kaiser. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's very inspiring to hear um, your take on the way that one person can really change a whole system. I think it's really easy to feel like just such a small peg in a big system and kind of start feeling helpless. So yeah, that's very inspiring and uh, very encouraging. Um, and I think you kind of spoke to, I guess, uh, your passion to start leadership was to help kind of those underserved um, Native Hawaiian populations. Um, can you talk a little bit about what makes practicing in Hawaii um, unique um, and maybe to the need for physicians in Hawaii as well? You know, I think um, the practice of um, medicine in Hawaii is unique in the sense that it's really about the people, right? It's the reflection of the people and the culture that we care for. You know, the one thing I tell people what's different about taking care of patients in Hawaii is that people here have aloha. Aloha, right? Aloha is to stand in the front of ha is the breath of life. People have aloha, right? Because I think people have that sense of that what's pono, what is right, right? And it's to have aloha for whoever they are. So the practice of medicine in Hawaii, um, I think, I think is um, um, unique in that. Um, I get to go to work, and out of respect for my kupunas who are much older than me, I call them auntie and uncle, and that's something that's endearing. They, they're delighted that I call them that. Some even call me nephew. <laughs> but it's... Uh, it's a kind of a unique place, you know. Um, yeah, I think going away for college definitely made me realize how unique and special the people and the culture of Hawaii are. Um, so being a MedPs doc here in the islands, what's the most common diagnosis that you see? Yeah, so when I look at my average age of my populations, they're all, oh, I'm Medicare heavy. And so you're talking 65 years and higher. My population probably is going to be around 60 average age. Um, and so you're looking at the common lifestyle type of diseases like diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, um, and then, you know, some of the actual um, outcomes of those diseases if they weren't well regulated. That, that would, those would be the most common things, um, I would say, yeah. Do you have like a favorite type of patient? Do you enjoy more of that management and like handling chronicity? Um, or do you have some other favorites you like to see? 
you know, the I would say the favorite patient of mine to see are brand new patients where no one's been able to make the diagnosis on the patient. You go into internal medicine because you like to solve problems and um, there's nothing better to get a patient who um, they've gone from doctor to doctor and no one's could figure out what's going on and then going ahead, you know, taking the, you know, detailed history, looking at all the past medical history, looking at current labs and then figuring out what they have. I mean, those patients are the most satisfying um, from an academic standpoint, you know, very fulfilling because these people are frustrated because they've gone from doctor to doctor and have no um, diagnosis. Believe it or not, even though I didn't like the rotation, I think sometimes those patients that have um, anxiety and depression are sometimes the another exciting ones to have because they come into you, you know, in some disrepair, and then through constant coaching and mentoring, as well as with medications, a lot of time. You can see them blossom as they come out of anxiety and come out of depression and they have hope, you know, and so those are actually pretty fun too. And of course, my pediatric kids that still follow me, those are actually my joy, you know, I do that for free, just seeing my pediatric kids. So what would you say is the best part of your job? Um, the best part of my job definitely is seeing patients. I mean, that's the one thing that you guys all go through med school for. You go to med school to heal patients, right? But we heal patients, we heal the family, we heal the family, we heal our community, and we make our community stronger. So given all the changes and advances being made in medicine, um, like for instance, for now, um, with COVID and using a lot of technology and telehealth more, do you think that will ever change the way that we um, practice medicine? Yeah, I think the emergence of technology has vastly changed um, the way we do medicine today. I think the patients of today are much more knowledgeable. Um, they all have a medical degree from Google, and they they let us know that every time we see them. Uh, it definitely makes us, um, you know, we've got to be on our toes. We've got to know things. Um, sometimes the information they get is misdirected and so a lot of it is counseling and you know teaching um, but sometimes what information they do bring to the table is actually right on the dot and you know i hate to say it sometimes they're correct right i think um the advent of this thing here called an iphone it has rev revolutionized medicine as well um you, you look at what can be done with this. You can take an EKG off of this. You can attach it. You can do ultrasounds. You can do monitoring of data, patient data. We used to do it every time they came in. That was a point of data. Now we got continuous data on patients. And how do we leverage that into making, you know, providing better care for people, right? And I think that's where the emergence of AI will come in. Because now we can co create personalized, um, you know, treatment plans for patients based upon their biometric data that they collect, right? You wake up in the morning and it's going, hey, good morning, Riley. Hey, today there's a, you know, 70% chance of VOG 
um, in the air. And so we recommend you taking two puffs of your QVAR, up it up from one puff twice a day to two puffs twice a day. Take a, um, you know, your Ventolin and carry it with you because you might, you know, need it. Um, it's going to tell you, you know, information like that, integrating what's happening with the weather to the climate and how do we personalize that treatment plan for the patient? I think there are things that they're researching now that's implantable into your bloodstream, which will, which will monitor enzymes. So monitor for things like troponin eyes and tell you, Riley, you'd seek to go to the nine, uh, you know, either call 911 or go straight to the emergency room because the chances of having a, a heart attack will be high. Yeah, and all of this is all available because of what's happening with technology. Yeah, I believe within the next five to seven years, these things are about to happen. So you guys actually are in a perfect time because you'll see these things happen right before your eyes and it will change things. So it may make things challenging. And so it's about being flexible and about keeping your eye on the future. Yeah, And how do you then morph what do you guys do? into the current, you know, paradigm. Right. Um, do you, so I guess from that, you kind of see it more as the technology and everything more as a complement to the clinician, not ever replacing it in any way? There's one thing that a clinician can do, which I believe the AI can't do. But then I take that back because, you know, who thought people can have a relationship with their phone like Siri or something or there's these other apps and things like that, which is mind-boggling, you know. Um, but one thing that a human, uh, that you can't take away from being a doctor is the human touch. The ability as appropriate to empathize with your patients, support, engage, you know, inspire, you know. There's the human touch is so important. Something we realize also with COVID-19. As we separate it and people no longer can hug each other, right? It's, it's something that speaks loudly, you know, to what our needs of as being a human beings. We're not a plug-and-play robot. We have emotions. And I think that is where we must always remember is the humanity in medicine, and the more and more we, we, we get ourselves removed from the humanity, we will make ourselves obsolete. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's just been a difficult thing everywhere um, during COVID, just losing that human connection and that personal touch. Um, so do you have to take call usually? And how has that changed um, now with COVID? Um, we do. Uh, so for primary care, our call is working in the after-hours clinic. Um traditionally we would do a four-hour shift and it was not a lot i mean depending on um how many people we had enrolled in onto the staff for our after hours clinic um sometimes it's once every three months sometimes it's once a month um, but it's just four hours usually weekends or after hours and um you know with the COVID-19, that's all changed to now doing remote coverage. So we're doing telephones, support, you know, and if we can solve the patient's problem over phone, then great. If not, then they would be sent into the clinic. So we're doing a lot more telephone support for that call. So you can do that at home. 
So it's not really call. It's like quasi call. I guess like going off of I'm um, taking call and stuff. Can you speak a little bit about work-life balance?、Uh, do you have enough time, like outside the hospital,、um, to spend time with your family and things like that? So yeah, so you know, for me, the most important thing is my family. Okay,、um, I think sometimes what I don't have enough time is myself. Yeah,、uh, things that make me that recharge me. You know, I sometimes have had to put those things that I like. On the side,、um, just because the demands of both the family where they're at, how young or how old your kids are, you know, you sort of have to make choices.、Um, but you know, those are things that we consider what is important to us, right, in life.、Mm-hmm. But I do believe with my job, where I'm at, we do have work-life balance. Put it this way: I don't have anyone quitting us because they don't have work-life balance in primary care. Yeah. So you kind of mentioned having to, I guess, put aside some of the things、uh, you personally enjoy, and I know like physician burnout continues to be like a pretty big topic of concern.、Um, have you ever experienced burnout? And if so, do you have any like techniques or things that you you've developed to kind of counteract and、um, avoid that burnout? Yeah, I, I think、um, you know, I think、um, being aware of yourself,、uh, being aware of what motivates you. What's important to you is, a, you know, it's so important to have that、um, honesty to yourself,、um, and that when you're not feeling well, you're not feeling like you can give anymore because of circumstances. Right now, with COVID nineteen, is pretty rampant. I think within our medical community,、um, people are worried about their finances. They fear. Going out of business, they fear they might not have a job. And these are doctors, right? Where we always thought our our you know financial security was secure.、Um, they've been working, maybe, and but not necessarily working the way that they've traditionally worked. Now they're doing a lot of telehealth. Now they don't have that touch with the patient as much as they used to have.、Um, when those times come, I think it's important to make sure you use your vacation.、Um, Take the time off, you know, and every program has what's called EAP,、um, Employee Assistant Programs, and it's important to go and you know sometimes just talk to someone.、Um, you wouldn't believe how many leaders and、uh, physicians need to have that time.、Um, not only is it something we give to our patients, but that mental health is also important that we partake of it. I think we have to have humility to say, hey. I need some time. I need to talk to someone. You know, I'm just getting to the edge, and so I think we have to change how we, how we, how we behave as doctors. Okay, so I'm a, I'm, I'll say I'm guilty of it. You know, I think I used to pride myself in 20 years of working at Kaiser. I may have called out sick maybe five, six times. Yeah, you had to have this、uh, like I'm a Iron Man. You know. We don't call in sick. We we go and we serve the community, but we've got to really change that mindset because we're not that. We're not all that, you know. I think we sometimes down colleagues for calling in sick, and that's not the right attitude. And it's a big mental thing that you have to turn again. It's around having enough humility, around that we also need our care. Right,、um, 
and we need physical care, we need mental care as well. And a lot of it is we do it to ourselves and we wait too long and we hit burnout. So if we can be good about ourselves and pace ourselves along the way, we'll make it before we get there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I really like what you said there about humility. I think we tend to blame the system a lot for burnout, but we don't really consider the role that our own pride can play in contributing to burnout as well. Um, But I guess given the difficulty and the extensive nature of training in medicine, um, what is the biggest piece of advice you have for a medical student? The one thing that I would give is to know thyself, yeah? And being truly honest about what makes you tick, what is important to you. And so um, how do you get to that? How do you get to that essence of truth, that nugget of truth? It takes time. It takes deep reflections. And so much of life is just about next, 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 especially as medical students, right? It's, okay, we're the next unit. Okay, what are we studying now, right? Oh, it's the heart. Oh, my God, it's the heart. Oh, no, right? Then kidneys. Oh, my God, the kidneys. <laughs> kidneys are crazy, right? The, those loops of Henley and those transporters, sodium transporters, right? And... And in that, in that, you know, going from subject to subject or in medical practice, going patient to patient, I think that it's important to step back and reflect. And so, Riley, one thing I would ask you is, you know, knowing what's important to you. Knowing what's important to you will help you, guide you for the rest of your life. So... Let's say that this is 50, 60 years from now, okay? You've had a lifetime in whatever it was, in a career as a surgeon, a psychiatrist, a internist, um, you know, or some specialty like neurology. And, And this is your last days, and you have a choice of what you can put on your epitaph, on your gravestone, tell me what the epitaph will say. If you understand that, you will start to make sure that your choice of your career in medicine will allow you to fulfill that wish. You don't choose a career in medicine that's going to take you away. If in the end of things, medicine doesn't allow you to get to the most important goals of your life you will be you will be mad upset you would feel like medicine took the best years of your life away from you instead of being blessed you would feel being cursed as a doctor so understanding what that is what the most important things in life is right that is what I mean by know thyself. You have to know thyself. For me, I always wanted to be a good husband, a good father, a good son, and then a good brother, yeah, and a good friend. To me, my relationships with the people who met my that valued me the most is what was important. And so I chose a career that allowed me to still 
be able to fulfill those important goals. They not, there might not be lofty goals, but they're important to me. Had I chosen a career that took me away from that, yes, I would be burnt out. I would be mad. I'd be upset. Um, you know, I'll be thinking about when can I retire and I'll be calculating it from the time I was 35 years old. But no, I am blessed. I'm blessed with a great career that allowed me to be everything I could be. And it's because I was really honest to myself on what matters to me. Yeah, being in medicine, it's, it's such a blessing. But as you mentioned, it can also become very consuming, you know, if we don't solidify and remind ourselves of what's really, really important to us, um, both before we start and also as we continue throughout our training. Um, those are definitely some questions that I've considered. And I encourage you listeners also to reflect just upon those as you go through your journey as well. Well, that's all we have for you today. Thank you so much, Dr. Kwai, for sharing your journey and all your wisdom with us. The passion you have to serve Hawaii's community is truly, truly inspiring, and it's something I hope to embody um, as a physician as well. Thank you guys for tuning in to our first episode of Doc's Talk Story. Join us next time in episode two as we continue to journey through the stories of different specialists. And don't forget to head on over to our website to give us your feedback and input on who you'd like to hear from next.